comes to mind when you think of the word February. Now, very few people like, would admit that February is their favorite month of the year. I know it's the shortest month, but it is a month that feels like it's 45 days long. Uh, February, uh, the word February means purification, which could be a really cool way to think about February. It's a month of trying to purify a heart and a mind or maybe to prepare us for an Easter season. But February is a month where even psychologists have done research. It's a month where we are not our sharpest. It's a month that usually we've been through winter, especially those of us in the northern hemisphere. We've been through a couple of months of winter, and we haven't seen the sun as much, and we're reaching for the spring, but it's not quite here yet. I think it is the only month of the year for 140 years that we could say, let's all look at a groundhog to see if there's any hope in the world, right? Like, I don't think I could ever pass in like May or September where we could be like, let's look at that little animal to see if there's hope in the world. But February, they can get us. It's like February holds us hostage sometimes. Sometimes when we think February, we may think Black History Month. It's a month to lean in a little more, to listen, to learn, to reflect on the past so that we can continue to move forward into the future. For some, when you think of the month of February, you think the month of love, where there's Valentine's Day. Casey and I have now been together over half of our lives. So we're 32. We've been dating since 16 or something like that, right? Uh, but, but you may think that it's a, it's a month of love. And for, for so... With that in mind, I mean, some of us, we think February, we think Valentine's Day, we think about connection. For some people, they think just the acknowledgement of what isn't there anymore or what hasn't happened or relationships that aren't there. So for the next four weeks, I want to talk about uh, relationships. It's a four-week series called Table Talk, just God and relationships. I want to look at relationships and what they teach us about God. So today I want to start with how Jesus talks about relationships. And we're going to be in a few different places in the Bible, and Luke chapter 14 is where I want to start. And this is a place, it's a chapter, after a few stories, where Jesus has pushed people really hard about what it means to live lives of humility, what it means to not jockey for the best positions in the house or at the table. And now it is one of the strongest calls of discipleship that Jesus makes. And it's in regard to family. In Luke chapter 14, verse 25, it says this, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So can you imagine a large crowd following Jesus? They're on a road, and then Jesus turns around, and he's like, Hey, everybody, l listen to this. And then he gives them one of the hardest teachings about relationship. Like, if you don't hate your husband and your wife, your children, your grandparents, you know, aunt, uncle. If you don't hate everybody and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And I wonder how many people in that crowd, how many husbands and wives were holding hands as they were following Jesus, or how many moms and dads were either holding their babies or walking with their kids, and then they hear Jesus say, if you don't hate every other relationship in your life, you can't be my disciple. Now, I don't think any of us would make the argument that Jesus is anti-family. Right? Jesus is a reflection of the heart of God. Right, He is reflecting to the world what God is like. You see throughout the entire Bible, God is for family. God is for relationships. 
And I don't want to soften the blow and just say Jesus was using this as a moment to make sure everybody had Jesus as the most important person in their life. I think Jesus is going after allegiance here. I think Jesus is trying to share with people that there is one throne in your heart and I want to be on it. And there can't be a throne for Jesus and then a throne for your spouse and a throne for your kids and then a throne for every other relationship or a throne for your job. There is a throne for Jesus and He's the only one who can be there. So when it comes to any relationship in your life, A pursuit of Jesus makes all the other relationships better. The last few weeks I've been able to walk with about a a group of a dozen guys in their 20s and we've just been committing ourselves to to some spiritual disciplines as we're going deeper into God together and something I've reminded them of every single week is the greatest gift you can give to any other relationship in your life is to pursue the heart of Jesus. The greatest gift you can give a spouse, the greatest gift you can give kids, co-workers, friends, is for you to pursue the heart of Jesus. This is why in weddings, a lot of times when I perform weddings, I read Luke chapter 9, 23 and 24. It's a call of discipleship when Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my follower, he or she must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. This is the greatest gift you can give to anyone else around you. So in Luke 14, Jesus sets the bar high. There's one throne I want to be on it. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus had a moment where he's teaching the crowd. And in this this moment, Jesus is teaching about demon possession and the kingdom of God has come to conquer evil. And then when Jesus, right there, Jesus is making this teaching, he is interrupted or this woman is like shouting amen. And when she shouts amen, what she says is, blessed is the woman who gave birth to you and the woman who nursed you which I don't know what I would do if I was ever teaching here on this stage and somebody in the crowd shouted this to me. I don't, I don't, I, how do you respond to that? I don't know if Jesus was like, uh, thank you, I'll pass that on to my mom, I'll let her know. Uh, uh, but this is woman, she's like shouting out, like, blessed is the person who has raised you to be as wise as you are right now in the moment. So she's like giving praise to the teacher's mom, right? Like, Thank God that somebody raised you up with the wisdom and discernment to teach the kind of teaching that you just gave. And Jesus responds to her in a very interesting way. And I think the reason we have this story isn't because of what the woman said. It's how Jesus responded to the woman. Now, in your Bible, it may not have this, but the very first word Jesus speaks in response to this woman is no. It's nope. Like, you just said that, and it's almost like Jesus is disagreeing with her to an extent. He says, no, like, no, rather, blessed is the one who hears the word of God and obeys it. So John Ortberg, great author, great church leader. John Ortberg talks about how too often in our culture and too often in a church culture, we make the highest calling in someone's life to be a parent or to be a spouse. It's to be a person who has a family. And for Jesus, the highest calling in someone's life isn't parent status or marital status. It's status with Jesus. That's the bar Jesus raises. Now this can be a challenge in our culture, and it can be a challenge in church culture. And I've encouraged people before, and I I hope you take this seriously, and I want to encourage you again. When you know people who are married without kids, don't go up to them asking when the kids are going to come. Or that you're running out of time and you're getting too old, so you better start having them now. Because you don't know how hurtful those words may be to those who have had miscarriages or those who struggle with infertility or those who, are got, who got married and just do not feel the call of God to, to have children. They want to serve God in other ways. 
So you may just not know. So for anybody in this room who would love to have the parent status, but it hasn't happened, for those of you who are married and there are no kids, for whatever reason, just know that parent status, when it comes to the kingdom of God, that heaven isn't blinking on what your worth is in the kingdom of God or what you have to offer to the church or to the world. You are invited to the table of Jesus. And I think it's important to also take a moment because in our culture and even in church culture, sometimes we don't know what to do with singles. Or we sometimes treat singles as if we've got to come along in their life to pray prayers to help them not be single as quickly as possible. So in some churches, even single ministries, it's all about like christianmingle.com. Like how can we get people in a room and try to hook them up so that they don't have to be single anymore? And Stanley Hauerwas reflects on singleness and he helps the church understand that the church, Christianity, was the first religion and the first movement in the world that held up adult singles as a viable option in life. Like held up adult singleness as a viable option to live out your mission with God in the world. Because in ancient culture, when like all the Bible was written in ancient culture, like people didn't look at singleness as a viable option. In fact, there were even those like Emperor Augustus who, who made rules, who made laws that if you become a widow, you have two years to get remarried. And if you're not remarried within two years, there are fines by the government that will be slapped on you. Like crazy stuff. Like you got two years to try to grieve your, your death and then get remarried. But not the church. The church came along of, sing, of singles especially poor widows, to give them dignity and a voice and a place in community. So Paige Brown, and I know especially some of the women in the room today are, are participating in this worship service. You have, or you have or you are in Bible studies with Paige Brown. And she reflected on singleness. And this, this, she wrote an article well over 10 years ago. And what she wrote about a little bit in that article was how singleness is not deprivation. And she said this. She said, let's face it. Singleness is not an inherently inferior state of affairs, but I want to be married. I pray to that end every day, and I, that I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in, in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. I may never have another date because God is so good to me. And that can be the tension. So here's the thing. My buddy Glenn Haley, who's been a part of this church in Sycamore View, started in 1978. He wrote a long email to Hinkle and I this past week and talked about how there was a single ministry in the late 80s in this church that grew to over 100 people. And it gave people vo a voice and it gave them a place at the table. And when it comes to singleness, I hope that we are a church that has been and that will always be a place where singles have voice and where they feel worthy and that they have a place at the table and a place in community. And I hope that we are able to do that and to still value and fight for the beauty and power of marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus had some people who came up to him and they questioned him about divorce. So they came to Jesus and what they said was, the law of Moses says you can hand a certificate of divorce to someone. What about you, Jesus? Like they, they ask him questions about divorce. And Jesus, in his response, doesn't address divorce at all. And I'm sure they were thinking, just answer the question. We want to know about divorce. 
And Jesus responds by elevating and lifting up the covenant of marriage. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 19. And Jesus quotes directly from Genesis chapter 2. And here's what Jesus says. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They come and ask Jesus about divorce. He responds by elevating the beauty and the power of marriage. Jesus quotes directly from Genesis chapter 2. Where in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 it says this, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation narrative ends with a wedding and with marriage and God is the one who performs the wedding and the marriage. So of all the awesome stuff God did in all of creation, right, creating and speaking things into existence, Creation doesn't end with a, here's how beautiful creation is. Creation ends with marriage and a wedding where two distinct beings become one. And this word one is the word ahud. Some people interpret this to to mean compound unity. It's two things or more than two things that come together that form one. And this word here, this ahud, this is not the most significant use of ahud in the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, in what is known as the Shema, which has been recited and memorized and stated by Jews for thousands of years. In the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, here's what it says about God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is a hut. The Lord is one. This is used to describe what God is like. But before the Bible uses this word to describe who God is, God uses this word to describe what marriage is supposed to be. Two becoming one. Ahud. Where God spotlights marriage, which is arguably the relationship that opens up a window to see exactly what God is like. More than any other relationship, God is a God of covenant, God is a God of commitment. And I know we're living in a time now where there are so many people who have commitment-itis or commitment-phobia where they are so slow to commit. But what you see throughout the entire Bible and with Jesus is a God of commitment and a God of covenant. A God who, who makes oaths and states oaths and then keeps them, keeps His promises. And I get that we live in a culture now where there are people who aren't so high on marriage. Now, some of the arguments I don't get, but I get that there are some people who have had negative images of marriage in their life, that they haven't seen a lot of healthy or positive marriages. And there are a lot of arguments today why people shouldn't get married. Either it's, uh, you know, it's just a sheet of paper or that for years what they want to say is back in the days that marriage was really just about property or uh, what marriage does is it crushes individual identity. So why should a woman have to give up her name to take on another name? And there are all these arguments about marriage being archaic or too traditional. And what I also understand, and just reality is, especially in the United United States, is that people in their 20s, at least half of them in our country are children of divorce. And only half of them will ever take a step into a church. So for many of them, what their images of marriage have been relationships that haven't worked or that aren't working or something that may not be an ideal to aim for. 
I remember it was Chris Rock in a comedy sketch years ago. He said, you can choose in life to either be lonely or single and lonely or to be married and bored for the rest of your life. Like, these are your options. And in the church for 2,000 years, the church has come along people to say, you don't have to be single and lonely. You can be single and have meaningful community. And you don't have to be married and bored. You can be married and thrive with God. And this is why it's so interesting that the Bible begins and ends with the marriage and with wedding. With the wedding and with marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, uh, God ends cr the creation narrative with this marriage between Adam and Eve where there is Ahud, where two become one. In Revelation chapter 21, the Bible ends with this imagery. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The last image you get in scripture is of heaven and earth being meshed and being drawn together like a wedding into this marriage, into this union where there is this, this oneness. And then throughout the Bible, you see how God values the marriage covenant and God takes this on as something he has to offer to the world. That in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, when you receive the Ten Commandments, when we receive the Ten Commandments, a lot of imagery today in Jewish weddings comes from Exodus chapter 19, where Moses walks the people of God up to the mountain. And then many people say that the Ten Commandments are actually like wedding vows that are being exchanged between God and his people. Throughout the prophets and throughout the Old Testament, God talks about himself as a God of covenant and a God of commitment. The first miracle Jesus performed was turning water into wine at a wedding. And some of that is Jesus making a wedding better. And maybe some of it is Jesus not wanting a marriage to start off with embarrassment, but to start off on a good foot. And then you have Paul, who many argue that Paul was a single man, yet Paul used marriage language to talk about baptism in Romans chapter 6 and to talk about Jesus' relationship with the church in Ephesians chapter 5. God values the marriage covenant, not just for the nuclear family but for us to get a window into who God is, who, what God is like. This is what God offers to the world. Now here's the thing though. We live in a time where in culture and in church culture, sometimes we can elevate the family and talk too much about it and sometimes we don't talk enough about it. And it's possible for us to sometimes idolize the family. There was Barna research done about a decade ago in which a lot of people responded to this survey. And usually Barna gets thousands of people who respond to their surveys. And a third of the people who responded said that they, they believe that the nuclear family in their life has been more important than God. These were Christians responding to a survey, admitting and confessing that their nuclear family was more important than God. And that's a third of the people who actually admitted it. There's a phrase I used to use early on in ministry. And I would say things like, my family is my first church. And I get for any of us, no matter what job you have, you don't want a job or vocation coming in between your marriage or coming in between your family. And for those of us who work in and through and with the church, like we don't want the church to be what a spouse sees as coming in between them or, a, or what, a, what kids see coming in between them and their dad or them and their mom. So I, I, I get the argument, but it's a phrase I don't use anymore. 
I, I don't say things like, my family is my first church, because the church that God created was something that God was bringing together people and marital status and parental status had nothing to do with how healthy that church was going to be. It was about people being redeemed by God and being drawn together into meaningful community. So here's how one of my friends talks about this. One of my friends says, there are kids all over the world who see us place kids first, like the most important thing in their lives all the time. And for infants, like if we don't like put them first and prioritize them, they're not going to make it. They're fully dependent upon us. And Casey and I joke sometimes, like right now we are in a stage of our lives where we feel like unpaid Uber drivers. Like where our kids need to be is more important than where we need, where we need to be. And it's like, that's it. We're just unpaid Uber drivers. And my friend talked about how our kids see us put them first all the time. But how often do our kids see us put God first? And if we were to ask our kids... Talk about moments in your life where you've seen mom or dad put God first. What would they say? And sure, no, you should ask mom this question. Probably not dad, right? Just to get her feedback. How often do our kids see us put God first? There's a phrase we sometimes use that blood is more important than water. And I get it. Like for family, like you fight for each other, you protect each other. But when it comes to the church, it's not that blood... Is thicker than water. Water is thicker than blood. The waters of baptism have brought us together. And marital status and parental status doesn't give us any closer status to the throne of God or a seat at the table than any other status. It's, it's because of what Jesus has done. And Stanley Hauerwas says it like this. He says, For Christians do not place their hope in their children, but rather their children are a sign of their hope that God has not abandoned this world. And I think we could say the same thing. Like, for Christians, do not place their hope in their spouse, but rather their spouse is a sign of, the, of their hope that, that God has not abandoned the world. And we could talk about almost any relationship in that kind of way. So I want to invite you to take the bread and the cup in your hand just for a moment. If you're with us virtually, if you have the bread and the cup, if not, just stay with us in this moment. Because a lot of times when we come to the table, uh, we encourage you, like, what are you going to think? Like, what do you think about God? And how do you reflect on what Jesus has done for you and, and the death of Christ and the resurrection? <clears throat> but I want to encourage you just for a moment to think, what do you think God thinks in this moment? And in the Old Testament, there were moments when God would make an oath, where God would make a promise. And then in and through Jesus, through death, burial, and resurrection, God made this ultimate promise for us, that salvation has been offered, that relationship is extended, that grace has been given. And every Sunday when we come together, every time we take the bread and the cup, we are reminded of God's oath. This is a moment when God recites his vows, his promises to us, and reminds us of our status with God that is not based on human relationships. It's much, as much as God is for them, it is based on our status with God. And it doesn't matter your marital status or your parental status. The seat at the table where the bread and the cup is present, all of us have equal status before God. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 19. 
This is one of the final images in the entire Bible. It says, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, our, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us, re let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this down. Now get out your pen, get ready, listen to this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. He says, we take the bread and the cup this morning. Blessed are those, blessed are you, for you are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's bow our heads. And Jesus, for all you have done, through your obedience, for you making a covenant, for you keeping your covenant, and for you speaking over us today, blessed are we, blessed are those who are inviting to your wedding supper. Thank you for our place at the table right now. We give you glory and we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please take the bread and cup.